Good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday morning gathering and happy Mother's Day. So thankful for all of you. We're especially today thankful for mothers. Uh, I guess that you know this by now, that no child that's ever been born uh, has been born from anything but a woman, and we're so thankful for that. And those women make, uh, those women, if they do their job to the will of the Lord, uh, make great uh, replicates of themselves. And I want to say that I am thankful for the opportunity to, to witness so many great mothers in our church. Uh, I think that we have uh, obviously Father's Day, Father's too, but we won't talk about you yet. We'll just save it for one day. Uh, but mothers, we have so many mothers in here that serve their families so graciously, so selfless, selflessly, and um, I, it is one of the reasons I have so much confidence that this church especially is raising a generation of children that are going to do great things for the Lord, uh, so I'm so thankful for that, and to continue celebrating Mother's Day, we're going to go into a sermon direction that talks nothing about mothers. So uh, be excited about that. I honestly do think, and, and I say that jokingly, but I honestly do think that that's what is so important about what we do at our church. And um, we rarely stop to celebrate these sort of smaller holidays and celebrations. And the reason is, primarily for Mother's and Father's Day, is that I believe that the best way that we can celebrate mothers and that we can train mothers and fathers um, is to just continue giving the full counsel of God's word. And so we just continue giving the full counsel of God's word. And um, I think in the end, what we're going to find is some really strong family units because they have been washed in the word of the Lord. Uh, I want to spend some time in prayer this morning. Before we begin, and uh, let's just beg and plead the Lord to meet with us through his word. God, you are so good and you are holy, there is none like you. Lord, in your goodness, you have chosen to save us, to pull us out of darkness and into marvelous light, to set us on the firm foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. In your goodness, you have redeemed us. In your holiness, Lord, you have set us apart to be unlike the world, to be unlike those who would casually follow Christ, but to be more than that, to be more than conquerors, to follow you in a way that is unlike the culture, unlike the world, and even sometimes unlike the Christian culture. Lord, help us as holy, set-apart, consecrated people to pursue you, to follow your will in our lives, to trust your will in our lives, to give you the glory and the credit for anything good or bad in our lives, and to trust you during the good and the bad. Lord, we know that the end of all things is at hand and that testing is going to come from the church, for the church and so we pray, Lord, that we are able to withstand the fiery trials of the enemy, that we are able to withstand the tests that may come our way, that we allow them to strengthen us uh, 
in in you. Lord, we trust you. We know that you know the hairs on our head, that not a day goes by that you are not with us, that there is nothing that uh, is far out of your reach or out of your outstretched arms. So we trust you. We give you our lives, Lord. It's all that we can do. We praise you and we ask all of these things and more in the name of Jesus. Amen. Over the last two weeks, we've discussed suffering and testing and how a Christian should respond. Peter reminds the churches that the end times was at hand. Remember, and I've reminded you this every week for like the last four weeks or so, and I'll do it again. The end times began at the life, death, a life ministry and death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, excuse me, Peter reminds uh, his people, his, the peop- his readers at the churches of Asia Minor that the end of all things are at hand, that Jesus has come, the prophecy is fulfilled, and so um, we are going to face testing because of that. It has been true since Jesus, and it will be true until Jesus returns, that those who live a life ordered around the things of God, ordered around the things of God, will face trials and testing. The main takeaways that we should have taken from the last two weeks is that uh, testing comes to everybody. Spiritual growth and maturity then decrease the worry and the shock of testing. As we grow in Christ and as we grow in the things of the word, our shock by testing, our shock about testing decreases. Spiritual maturity helps us to face testing with great joy. Joy is not always, remember, happiness. Joy is the contentness in knowing that God is good, that he loves us, and that he wants our good. It helps knowing that Christ, it helps knowing that Christ did suffer. He was tested. It helps knowing that we have an example in that. It helps knowing, and it should help tremendously knowing, that we have the Spirit of God and that God did not leave us alone when when Christ ascended, but he left us with the Spirit of God as a helper. And that when we face testing well, we shine like the great light of the glory of God. We ended last week by asking two questions. Will you suffer well? Will you suffer in faith. Christians honestly spend a lot of time stepping over themselves in order to try to follow Christ. In doing so, they erase the blessing of suffering from the Lord and they give themselves an entire list of complicated consequences. Constantly facing the negative results of our sin and blaming our problems on God is not suffering well. Constantly, just in case some of you who are just coming in miss that, constantly facing the negative results of our sin and blaming our problems on God is not suffering well. But facing testing for the faith and in faith is. And no matter what we are to do, or no matter what we do, we are to entrust our suffering 
to the Lord, to the Lord, no matter what we go through. Cast all of your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He will see you through all of your testing, even the suffering that you bring upon ourselves, that we bring upon ourselves if we entrust ourselves to the Lord. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I am greatly encouraged by the work of my people, you, our people. The people in this church are, I believe, for the most part, working in faith towards trusting the Lord more and more. And I trust that we will all aid each other in the faith as the Lord gives us strength. Today we're going to move on to another related section that I think is so important. And I often think it's not spoken of enough. It's not spoken of in confidence or in boldness or the boldness that uh, it needs to be spoken of. And we're going to discuss elders, the elders of God, the leaders of the local body of Christ. Will you read with me 1 Peter 5? For the next two weeks, we're going to focus on 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. For various reasons, I believe the subject of elders and the local church leadership is one of the most important subjects for our day and really any day. I believe this is true because the local church in many ways has forfeited its power and influence in the community. Now, when I say power, I don't mean a domineering power because we've already seen from our verses today that that's not the point of the church. It's not the point of biblical eldership. But what I do mean is the power to affect positive change has been forfeited in many church and it has been hindered in many others. There are many reasons why this is true, but if we are going to start blaming anyone in the local body of Christ for the problems in the local body of Christ, it has been, it needs to be the leaders of the local body of Christ. At some point, we got so far away from the important things at the church that many leaders cannot even see when they go wrong or when they've gone wrong. They are doing what they were taught and what the person that taught them was taught. But it is so far away from what we are actually called to do that the church's purpose and mission, the church's validity has been distorted. Through these series of missteps, many churches have lost their way and have lost their influence. Just so I'm not being too vague, I want to tell you a few of these missteps. The leaders in many churches are more concerned with being loved and making others feel accepted than speaking truth. One of the greatest missteps in the history of mankind, but definitely in the history of the church, is when leaders shied away from speaking the truth about God. They thought that it would be better to be accepted 
it would be better to make people feel good than it would be to tell the truth. And the problem is, is that in the end, although the work is hard, it is better to make people, it is better to wound people for their benefit than it is to constantly puff people up and make them feel like everything is okay. Just from, not, now that's a spiritual standpoint, but just from a psychological standpoint, think about it this way. If you tell someone whose life is a mess that they are perfect just the way that they are, that life is great just the way that they are, what hope do you think it gives that person? If someone's life is a mess, you know what you need to tell them? Your life is a mess, but it can be better. If you tell someone that, whose life is a mess that they are just the way they should be and that life is perfect, the only logical result for them would be because they're sitting here thinking life is terrible. The only logical result, the only solution that they would have is suicide. Because if life doesn't get any better than this, why not just end things? But if you in love start speaking the truth to someone and you tell them, hey, you're not perfect the way you are. Your life is a mess, but there is a God and a plan that is better for you than what you have right now. If you give them the understanding that there is hope at the end of all of their mess, you start building people who are ready to grow and ready to do anything to follow the Lord. And so one of the greatest problems that we have with elders, leaders in the church, is that we have abandoned the truth to make people feel comfortable. Another thing is we've abandoned the truth to feel loved, to feel loved. I want to tell you, and it comes, it's difficult, and it may not always be true about me, but I have, it has been the testimony of you that I know it's true in some cases. I would rather you love me because I'm willing to say the hard things and work through those with you than that I'm willing to hide, that I'm willing to hide them Keep them from you in order to save you the hurt or the embarrassment. I don't want you to love me because it's easy or I make it easy on us. I want you to love me because I pursue the truth to try to get out of the way of the Lord and you can respect that. And I know it's true for some of you, and I hope it's true for all of you, and I hope the reason it's true is because I've done that and not just because you feel sorry for me or something. So the leaders in many churches are more concerned with being loved and making others feel accepted than speaking truth. And so we've abandoned truth in many ways. Another problem I see in many churches, and, and some of these sometimes come into our church. I don't think they have a hold in our church, but sometimes they come into our church. Leaders in many churches lead the church to minister to lost people and church hoppers. I want you to know one great problem, in the lo and this is a great problem in local churches, is the ministries are organized for lost people. Can I tell you this? I've told you this before, but just in case you forgot... The local body of believers, the gathering of Christians, that's what we are today, that's where we are today, is not for unsaved people. It's not for unsaved people. Now, we unsaved people should feel welcomed. 
They should want to be a part of this. They should feel like they belong. But every Sunday sermon, while it should have a gospel message, it should proclaim salvation to the congregation because we need the saved people need the gospel just like unsaved people. The message on Sunday mornings, the uh, activities and events, the gospel circles, the missional communities should be formulated in a way where you are feeding sheep and not trying to find new sheep. I know that it's hard to understand because your whole life, your entire life, if you were a part of a church outside of ours, someone formulated a church to where it was meant to gather the lost. Or it was meant to uh, another, and, and this is even more dastardly, it's more da- at least the first one has good intentions, but the second one is even more terrible, to get people who hop churches. Can I tell you, the reason we don't do a bunch of fancy things is because the same way you get people is the same way you have to keep people. And eventually, as your church gets sort of more churchy and more tired and more old, eventually another church is going to come around with more shiny bells and whistles, and they will pull the people that you can't compete with, or you, because you can't compete with them, they will pull the people away that you got with the bells and whistles. And so we don't... We don't attract people with bells and whistles because practically we could never keep up. But also spiritually, what you get someone with is what you keep them with. And if we get someone with the spirit of God, the work of Christ, the, the glory of the Father, we keep them with that. And over time, there is no other option but for the church to grow in spirit and in truth. The church is not for the lost. The church gathering is so pastors can equip the people to share the gospel with their friends, family, those in their circle of influence. Leaders in many churches have made the church about a ministry to the lost and a ministry to church hoppers and not a ministry of feeding the sheep. Another thing I see in church culture is leaders in some churches are making decisions just to keep the doors open. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but many leaders make decisions to keep the, uh, the, the church doors open. One thing, one thing that I promised myself, I promised Blake and subsequently Stephen, and I promised you and I will promise you forever, you will, you will never get me to, you will never strong arm me to make a decision by, by the possibility of losing your financial support of this church. I would rather never take a salary. I would rather never take a dime from this, from our budget, than have to feel like I make a decision based on financial reasons. And many pastors, and it's not their fault, they come into a a bad situation already. Many times it's not their fault. They come into a bad situation already, but they are so worried about losing one or two people that if they make those bad decisions, that they'll lose them and the church will implode. I want to tell you that is fear-based decision-making, and no organization is ever successful operating out of fear. And so we won't do it. We won't do it. So you're more likely to get from me, see you later, than you are, oh my goodness, what can we do to make you feel better? Now I don't, I don't, if 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 your intention is to hold money or anything like that over the church. 
I don't ever want our leaders to have to make a decision about choosing right or wrong to keep the doors of the church open. I would rather, I would rather go back to meeting in my living room and selling this building. The leaders, another thing we see is the leaders in some churches are making decisions that only matter to the wrong type of people. I want to tell you something, and if you're this type of person, you need to repent and believe the gospel. I'm just being honest with you. If you feel obligated to make church leaders make decisions about chairs and, and carpet style and paint color and uh, different activities and different things like that, there are, there's only, there are two things, one of two things wrong. Either you are too spiritually immature to understand your role in the church, or, or you're not a Christian. Those are the two options. Okay? Now, while, listen, I, I'm a, I have a home improvement company. I flip houses. I think the necessity to have, to take care of what God has done for, given to us, take care of it well, I think it's vastly important. But we don't, we don't make decisions in the church. We're not going to have great arguments or great discussions or form great committees over the colors of the wall or the style of the carpet or the style of the chairs. To take that a step further, though, if the style of music is so important to you, I'm not saying it always is, but that could be a problem. And leaders give in to these things. I know oftentimes I remember at my last church, which I think I remember my last church very fondly. And, and I have very great memories. And it was a mostly positive experience. But I remember sometimes the pastor and myself make, allowing other people to make decisions that we weren't necessarily okay with because we were just so tired from ministry. It was just another thing that we didn't have to do. Leaders have allowed dumb things to divide the church for too long. And the only way to fix that is for the leaders to take control. And I don't mean, again, like dictatorial or whatever. What I mean is, say, this is the path of our church. Let's all get on this path. Another thing I see leaders do, leaders of some churches do not glory in the name of Christ, but they try to explain it away. Now this is, this is just shut your doors. If all you do is spending, spend all of your time teaching people about how Christ was, Christ was really just a lot like you sinners. I'm just a lot like you sinners. If all you do is spend your time trying to bring Christ down to the level of the lost and not the lost up to the level of Christ, then you just need to shut your doors. We don't, we do, we do. But in general, churches don't challenge enough. If we're no different, if Christ is the same, if he's so similar to us, if he's not holy, if he's not consecrated, if he's not set apart, and he doesn't ask us to be holy and consecrated and set apart, then what is the purpose of paying the light bills? What is the purpose of keeping the air conditioning going? 
We can find a bunch of more common people uh, online or at a bar or uh, at a local club of some sorts or at the golf course. We can find those people any day of the week. But if Christ is holy, excuse me, since Christ is holy, since he is set apart, the church should be doing the same because he calls us to do it. We should be distinguished. And pastors, leaders, in order to right the ship, must stop being embarrassed of the name of Christ and the name Christian and what God calls us to do. I want to tell you, as much as you think it's not true about me, it is with great difficulty that I ever have to call out sin in our church. I know that you probably think that I'm like just like really good at just picking on people, so it should be easy on me. It is with great difficulty because the pain that you're going through is the pain that we as leaders feel. The church feels what you feel. These wrong teachings have been met with disastrous results. The church has lost her influence. People don't even see a need for the church. One of the greatest things that we have to do when you first come here is to, and, and you, would, like, you would think, show them the importance of the Bible. Show them the importance of worship. Show them the importance of this and that. But you wouldn't think that if someone was coming to a church to be a part of a church that you would have to really make them understand the importance of the church. And one of the detox, de, detoxification things that you do, the detoxing things that you do, you have to do in order to be a part of our church is that we have to help you understand the importance of the local body. Because bad pastoring, bad leadership, and bad churches have ruined that mindset. Leaders have lost their example. We are not much different than the world. And even the most faithful Christians and the most faithful bodies of Christ have a hard time prioritizing the body over all of life's other distractions. On a side note, but related to what I just said, and I mean this with all my heart, the local church should be one of the top two or three priorities in your life. I mean it with all my heart. For me, I attempt to make it my relationship with the Lord, my relationship with my immediate family, and my relationship to the church. Those are the three priorities, top priorities in my life. And I understand this, and you should as well. You cannot have a right relationship with God. You cannot have a right relationship with your family in the way that God is ordained unless you have a right relationship with the church. I can assure you that you have you may have equal to but you have a no greater value of a relationship. After your relationship with the Lord, you have no greater value of relationship than the local body of Christ. Yet we have gone far away from what we were intended to be. It starts honestly it starts gradually. You remember the game Telephone? Play the game Telephone as a child. I've played it as an adult just to laugh. 
add some children in the mix. It's kind of funny. You know, telephone, if you don't know, it starts and it would like if we did it today, I would whisper something in Blake's ear. And then Blake would whisper something to Lindy, and then Lyndon, and then Bennett, and then Asher, and then Eileen. And then we would go all the way till we got to the back of the room. And once we got to Sam, Sam would have to repeat what he thought that I told Blake. And Sam, with somewhat confidence, would probably say, the chicken eats the eggs. I don't know. I, don't, I just, this is the first thing that came to my mind. So, but usually it was something like, I said to Blake, I exercised my legs, like something like that, okay? So Sam would say it with relative confidence because that is what had been passed down to him. Each person was saying a copy of a copy, a copy of a copy. And so what happens is over time, the original message is diluted. The original purpose is diluted. It reminds me, and I think I've used this before, I've used this example before. It reminds me of the movie Multiplicity. And the fact that it's older and you haven't seen it probably doesn't help. But it's actually a pretty good movie, so you you should go see it. But Multiplicity is this guy that has, uh, I know that I've used it before because I'm having deja vu as I'm saying it right now. Uh, Multiplicity is this guy that he's got a really busy life and he wants to figure things out. And so he finds a way to make a copy of himself. And he makes a copy of himself, and he turns out to be this, like, really macho man. And so he takes care of his work life. He makes another copy of himself, and it turns out to be this real feminine guy, and he takes care of his love life. And then the copies start being engrossed in the love life and the work life. So they make a copy of themselves, and he turns out um, defective. And so what happens is when you have the original and you make a copy... Even then, there's a little bit of variation. But when you make a copy of a copy, it's even worse. And so what has happened for years, churches in this country have been making copies of copy, copies of copies of what church is. And what happens over time is when you make copies of copies, the church becomes defective. Little changes here and there. And before you know it, it's an entire list of things. I can tell you without, with 100% certainty, the only way to right the ship is qualified men placed in the position called by God and preaching the full counsel of God as often as they get the opportunity and making even more opportunities to do so. That is the only way to right the ship. And I think that's why Peter is speaking to elders today and how it's connected to our last verses. So I want to give you, uh, that was the introduction, but I, want, I was, going, I was threatening, or not, threatening to tell you this or not, and I'll go ahead and tell you because that was a long introduction. Uh, this is an introduction that will go for next week too, so there won't be a super long introduction next week, but this will, you just have to look at this week and next week as one sermon. But I want to give you one point today, and we'll end with this today. I want to give you one thought today, and there will be two more next week. God has chosen elders God has chosen elders to lead the church. Look at uh, 1 Peter 5 again. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. I think the first thing that we must remember before we go on is that God has appointed a definitive leadership in the church, and those are the elders or overseers or pastors, which 
There's three different type of words, but I believe that they're all used simultaneously, especially the words for elders and overseer. There may be multiple names, but they all perform the same task, and that is to lead the church by example and to guide the church to living a life for Christ. Before we move on, I want to give you some facts about elders that will assist you in understanding our church and understanding what the Bible says about church leadership. The elders, the first fact is the elders are God's men who shepherd the church and are to be appointed for every church. In Acts 14, 23, the appointed elders in the church, they appointed elders in the church and they prayed and they fast over, fasted over them. Acts 14 also indicates that the disciples were appointing elders in every church that they planted. Even in Acts 6, which are the uh, appointment, which is the first appointment of deacons, we get some of the we get a clear sense of the role of elders in the church. The elders were uh, were being taken away from teaching and preaching, and so in Acts 6 they appoint deacons in order to take away that part of ministry, so the elders could teach and preach and lead the local body. In Titus 1:5, Paul told Titus that the reason he left Crete was to appoint elders in every town. All throughout Acts, throughout the New Testament, it has been, we have all the evidence that says that the elders are called to lead the church and they are to be appointed in every local body of Christ. The elders were called all throughout Acts uh, along with the apostles to make decisions. They were called in James to go and pray for the sick. The local church leadership has always been elders, pastors, overseers, whatever you want to call them. We call them elders here and pastors because we think that that most adequately uh, defines and stays in line with Scripture. The elders of God are always men who shepherd the church and are to be appointed for every church. A second thing you need to see is that elders are always men. Whether you like to hear it or not, elders are men. The leaders of the church are men. And that is the way the Bible has described it, and so shall it be. This enlightened society that has brought you the Tide Pod Challenge and gender fluidity might want you to think that, there are more, that there's more to it than that. But it just isn't true. In the qualifications mentioned in Timothy and Titus, we understand that these are men. These aren't just any men. They are men who stand out, who meet the qualifications in the Bible. These are men who can teach and fend off the wolves. They should be valiant and brave and as much as possible emotionally impenetrable by the culture. These first two are are not mentioned in our text, but I wanted to give them to you for full context. So I'm going to do sort of an old switcheroo on you. The first two are one and two. But in my outline up here, I have A and B, which are actually three and four of these four parts of an elder. So you can do them as three and four, or you can do them as A and B like they are in the outline. But (coughs) I just wanted to keep you on your toes. The third thing you need to see, also A, or maybe just three A, elders will be the first judged. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that is among you. The reason I know that the elders are going to be the first judge is because of the word so in our text today. Peter is using the word so to connect our passage today to the passages that we've studied over the last two weeks. Remember in our passage we discussed the trials and the testing that would take place in the church first and it was... The judgment of God. Well, Peter is using, remember Ezekiel 9? Yeah, Ezekiel 9 for his background of his text for the last two weeks. 
Ezekiel 9 says that the, the church or the, the judgment will start from within and it will start at the elders. The elders will be the first to be judged. While an elder is an important position and one that is necessary, it should be accepted with great caution. I want you to know, friends, I write every sermon in fear. I think about every piece of advice I give you in fear. Not that I'm scared about what is going to be said. Not that I'm scared that God's word doesn't hold true. Not that I'm worried that I will fail or fail God. But I worry that I might accidentally say some piece of information that leads you astray. Or some piece of information that is not accurate. And I, I have more anxiety and fear over doing something to harm you than probably anything or at least equal to anything else in my life. The role of elder should be taken with great caution, with great seriousness. My hope in that to say, my hope in that to say or uh, my hope in this fear and this caution is to say or do nothing to lead someone down the wrong path, even an inch from the truth. James 3 says, let us know that the teachers will be judged more strictly. So the position of elder is not something that people should take up half-heartedly. Elder will be the first to take on the strain of God's judgment. Suffering and trial put a strain on the entire Christian community. But I'm not sure that there is a greater strain than on the elders. Now, I don't want your sympathy when I say this, but I need you to hear this so that you can have the perspective of Blake, Stephen, and myself and other elders. When one person is going through testing, the elders go through testing. When one person is caught in sin, the elders are caught in that sin. Now imagine having an entire congregation of people who are always experiencing some form of trial or testing, some form of anxiety, some form of depression, some form of stress, some form of marriage trouble, troublesome children, fears over being barren, getting caught in sin. Every time a church member goes through it, an elder does also. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying this so you'll say, oh my goodness, well, Bryce and Stephen and Blake have it so bad. They have to go through all of this. I'm just going to keep my stuff to myself. That's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because you need to understand that we feel your pain on as real as possible all the time. Honestly, as hard as it is, and I think the other guys would say this too, as hard as it is, we accept it and we want it. We would rather you give it to us than for you to hold it back. But it causes great stress and great testing amongst the leadership. This is why it is so important for you to be an active and vital role in the church. It's so important that we work together so that order in the church is maintained. Elders must not only shepherd for spiritual health of the flock, but also themselves. Peter calls himself a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Peter is letting other elders know that he understands our position. That not only are you shepherding the spiritual health of others, but you have to shepherd the spiritual 
health of yourself. Here in our verse, he humbles himself to the role, from the role of apostle to the role of elder. He could have called himself Peter an apostle, but he says, Peter, a fellow elder. And of all the people who can relate as an elder, Peter can relate. Peter not only shared in the suffering of Christ, as he says in our verse, but he calls the suffering of Christ. Remember at one minute Peter, pray, Peter was praised for understanding the gospel and understanding who Jesus was. And the next minute he was called Satan for trying to stop the work and the ministry that, had, that was necessary for Jesus to fulfill his plan. Remember the last thing, the last act Peter did as an apostle was to deny Jesus three times. What Peter here is doing by calling himself a fellow elder is he is saying... While elders are the leaders of the church, we, just like you, are human. We are no more special, no more gifted in the sense of being able to uh, conquer sin. We are just people who are trying to submit ourselves to the Lord so that he can do that through us. And if you do that, you can have the same. (coughs) Peter here shared in the sufferings of Christ because he participated in it. He saw it, but he also participated in it. Peter is telling the elders in the church of the Asia Minor that their leaders aren't going to be perfect. They aren't going to have a perfect past. They aren't going to have uh, their, your, their problems from their past may arise. They aren't going to be perfect for you. But the standard that God has set is that we pursue him and reach for a higher mark. While elders are the leaders of the church and should be, we should hold them to a higher standard, they are still struggling human beings and we need you, they, we need you as much as you need us. It's difficult to be a Christian. It's difficult to be a good leader. I would like to think of myself as a stalwart like Paul or maybe a martyr like Stephen or even John the Beloved, but really I find myself being a poor man's version of Peter. I'm comfortable with that though because my pursuit of the Lord and truth is not hindered by occasional failings. I understand that when I fail, that it's a part of life, that I need to repent, that I need to trust the Lord and start pursuing him again. And I hope that sets a good example for you. Peter goes on to say that he as a fellow elder is a partaker of the glory to be revealed. He means eternally, eternity with the triune God. But also I think Peter is telling us that while elders stand out as leaders... They are not so different than the rest of the church. In most ways, elders and the church are the same, and especially in the most important way, and that is our joint union with Christ. I want to give you one more thing, and we'll leave today, and it's number four or or letter B, whichever one you want to do. Elders are responsible for those under their care. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, I've explained to you that elders are, are the leaders of the church. But what is their main task? Peter says that the main task of elders in the church is to shepherd the flock that God has placed among you. The main task of elders is to take great care and watch over those people that God has given to their charge. Peter is reminding us that of what Jesus told him directly. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, tend my sheep. He said, feed my sheep. It is, by, it is not by necessarily leading massive events or preaching great sermons, or having awesome social gatherings. It is not by meetings, or great discussion, or debate, or 
uh, talks about building in grounds that we shepherd the flock. I believe the way that we shepherd the flock is by feeding the sheep the full counsel of God and then counseling them with wisdom as they go along. The best way I know how to shepherd the flock is to learn and then teach you what I've learned. And then to help you along the way as try to figure out how that applies to life. So elders shepherd the sheep when they teach them the word and when they counsel them in, in wisdom and how to live their life. Growing the local body is not a concern of elders unless it is growth by new sheep. Planning and organizing the calendar is not a primary concern of elders. But leading people to Jesus and spending the vast majority of their time teaching them how to follow him is the main primary concern of elders. Feed the sheep. Protect the sheep. The best way to protect the sheep is to inform the sheep. To help them sniff out false teachers or wolves in sheep's clothing. To inform them of the dangers that lie ahead and teach them how to avoid them. Shepherd the flock. Something else that Peter points out is to shepherd the flock of God. While you are in my care, you are not my sheep. Another goal of every elder is to come to that humble realization. If there is any growth in Vintage Church, it's not going to be because of my preaching or because of my leadership. It is going to, it's going to be because the Lord has chosen to use those things to grow our church. And by growth, I don't mean like it hasn't happened. There has been significant growth in the most important ways in this church. Another great goal of the elder, of the shepherd, is to be humble. To realize this is not your church. I want to tell you, one of the greatest burdens I've ever had on my life has been Vintage Church. And for the longest time... I believe that Vintage Church could not operate without me. And I mean that as a confession and not, as a, not to be bragging. I believe Vintage Church could not operate without me for the longest time. And I had this great fear that if something happened to me, or if I decided that it was time for me to go, that this work would implode. Now I will tell you, for a long time I have not had that fear. For a long time, I've not had that fear. One, because I've humbled myself. I've grown up. But another, because God has matured, and not that they weren't mature before, but has matured even more, Blake and Stephen, into great leaders. He's brought us people like Tony. He's brought us deacons like Drew and Lloyd and Tony and Joe. He's brought us people that I know that if something were to happen to me tomorrow, if I were to die today, I know that this church would go on. You'd probably struggle a little bit. You'd probably have to figure some things out. But this church would go on. Because an elder, one of the greatest things and the first things he can know is that Vintage Church is not Bryce's church. It's not Blake's church. It's not Stephen's church. Vintage Church is God's church. This flock is God's flock. And no matter what I say from up here, it doesn't determine how God will work in his flock. It only determines how I am used by God. It only determines what God thinks of me, not what God will do with his people. 
If I came up here and just said blah, 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 literally those words, God could use that to grow his church. He, then he would strike me dead and remove me from the pulpit. But, but other than that, I, he could use it to grow his church. What I say up here only affects my outcome. It doesn't affect yours. But God uses it to grow you. And so I am very committed to seeing your growth. Understanding that it is not determined upon me, but it is determined upon God. I have this idea in my mind, and I'll close with this, of being a good borrower. God has let me borrow you. He's let me borrow you. Now, if you let somebody borrow something and they return it broken, you may, highly unlikely, but you may be willing to let them borrow it again. But if someone, if you let somebody borrow something and they return it in the same shape or in better shape than the way you gave it to them, you will give them more and more and more to borrow whenever they ask. And so I'm convinced of this. The greatest method of church growth, both spiritually and numerically, is to do well with the numbers that God has given you. To do well with what you've borrowed. And then when you do well with what you've borrowed, He gives you more. He gives you more. And He's done that in our church consistently. He's given us more spiritual growth. He's given us more numerically. And I think He's given us just the amount that we can handle over time. All right, I don't know where to end that, so I'm going to end it just right there because that's like the middle of a point. So we'll start, I'll start next week with the rest of this sermon, and I hope that it was good for you today. Let's pray. God, we love you. Uh, we're so thankful for your work in our life. We're so thankful that uh, you, while holding us to a higher standard, you give us all the means necessary to accomplish that standard, to follow you, to uh, live for you. And so we're so thankful for that. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus, who not only washes our sins away, but who puts us in right standing with God, who makes it able for us to follow him and to live more like him to the glory of the Lord. We love you. We love you. We love you so much. We praise you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.